My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. All right, everybody, this is it. The season finale of FOMO Sapiens. I am, of course, your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And we have made it to the end of the season. As you'll recall, the theme was how to crush it without getting crushed. I think maybe we did that. I'm not entirely sure. Go back to Monday's Full Monday show. You'll hear my kind of take on what are the big takeaways of this season personal, professional, you name it. We've done it all this season. And so I'm just excited because we're wrapping up on theme and in a pretty strong way with my guest, Andrew Frawley. Now, Andrew is a mental health advocate and movement builder. He was the second employee of Andrew Yang's 2020 campaign, our old friend, Andrew Yang, twice on this show. And Andrew Frawley created the math hat. Now that's the crazy hat that Andrew wore that everybody wanted to buy. So he's really good at virality, it seems. Pretty cool stuff. He is also the founder of the Good Life Movement, which is a nonprofit taking on mental health issues by creating a public movement focused on action and accountability. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to just end the season talking about this kind of importance of mental health and building a movement around it. But more than that, just how do you do that kind of stuff, right? Because everybody wants to build a movement, but how does one actually do the work and my guest, Andrew Frawley, together with Andrew Yang, you know, they did that. Their campaign for president was incredibly viral and Frawley was there the whole time. So he's a really interesting person. I loved when he pitched me. His pitch that came from the person he works with, his publicist, was so compelling. I was like, wow, this is insane. One of the best pitches I ever read. And so I wanted Andrew to come on because I just felt like if he can pitch that well, he's got to be a great guest. And in fact, he is. Now, small ask to wrap up the season. This one's for you. Do something nice for yourself. It's a busy time. Lots going on. Do something nice. Go for a walk. Have some hot chocolate. If you're in a warm place, have some juice. I don't know. Whatever it is for you. Go to yoga. But do something nice for yourself today because, you know, that's what we got to do. All right. And now to the interview. As you know, I'd like to start every interview with the same question. So I started by asking Andrew this, what's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? Wow. Um, I, I love this question and I've heard you ask it uh, before. <laughs> and I have to say, I actually thought about it a bit this afternoon and it was, um, I, I love the question because it, it, it's so hard to narrow it down. And so I came to realize I might be that annoying guest that might have sort of a, a few, but I'll try to bandy across. You can them. have more but, than one. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, my life has been full of um, various pivots uh, that, that all sort of like have this like synchronous meaning to, to what I'm doing today. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the first major pivot in my life was um, at the age of 16, I had spent about the last four to five years basically chronically depressed, uh, playing video games in my parents' basement. Uh, they had divorced early and I sort of just like spiraled at a, a very you know, formative age. Uh, I had developed an eating disorder. I uh, was several hundred pounds overweight and a form of uh, OCD where I was uh, ripping out my hair. Um, so I wasn't really this 
symbol of, of, of thriving. But I had this uh, summer where a, a friend of mine and I basically decided we wanted to change who we, who we are. Um, and I sometimes reflect on that moment and I wonder if it was me or if it was just some like uh, magical, you know, uh, intersection of, of, of happenstance where I had the willpower to fight back because I think at that age, it's like what gives us the, that sense of, you know, fight, but it it was a major pivot in my life. I, you know, rejected the lifestyle I had and I lost much of the weight, trained myself to become confident and and have social skills and and sort of take on the world. So that was like a, a major pivot in my life. The second one that was very defining and it really starts to connect more closely to the work that I'm doing today was in uh, my junior year of college. I had spent the previous years uh, really medicating in a new way. I was uh, happy to be socializing for the first time really in my adult life, <laughs> you know, ergo partying. Um, in my junior year, I realized I, I this one was much more conscious. I wanted to do and be more. Um, you know, I, I sometimes joke that I just felt very dumb. I hadn't been actually studying. I was in school and not doing the schooling. And I specifically, I wanted to take on the mental health crisis. I cared about mental health a lot um, and I wanted to support it through startups. And so I spent the last few years of my college um, time driving for Uber, trying to save money, working on random projects, doing Toastmasters, all the things, trying to find a way to get ahead. And I was looking at San Francisco. I was trying to get a job in a startup out of school in San Francisco. I, I couldn't get a job. I was rejected by over 270 different startups. And this was a p- pivotal moment where I said, you know what, I'm going to bet on myself and and I'm going to try and find a way to make it work. And so I actually had $6,000 to my name and, and just packed my Nissan Altima. Um, I couldn't get an apartment in San Francisco if you don't have a job. And so I just literally just started driving to San Francisco <laughs> with this sense of like, I'm going to figure it out. Um, along the way in you know the Midwest, I heard about these things called hacker houses um, applied to a hacker house. And that's where I ended up living. I paid the great bargain of $12.50 to sleep in a bunk bed uh, in a 10 by 10 room uh, in a house with 50 other uh, aspiring entrepreneurs and tech founders. And, and that was an exciting time of my life, but I ended up falling into this other long and extensive depression. And it, 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 was, it was really one of the great awakenings that I'd been medicating in many different ways through work or gaming or social life or what I had realized then, the desire to you know, support mental health, even that was a, you know, a, a front to not grapple with my own insecurities that at that point root back a decade to age 12. Through this whole process, I I became motivated to support mental health through systemic change as I learned about how widespread um, this was in the numbers and how really no startup can can take it on alone. And uh, I started thinking about systems, which intersected me with Andrew Yang, uh, which is a a whole story I can get into itself. But uh, there there was no bigger bet than uh, saying yes to Andrew Yang when he invited me to help found his presidential campaign that had... uh, absolutely no compelling pitch that it was gonna gonna be worth our time or or, or successful all right so you've given us now i feel like you gave us the two but there was <laughs> you know i'm glad you did too because that was like a buffet and i got a little trial little bits of your life and you know it's it, it was, as you were talking i'm thinking about because i lost 50 pounds in high school and mm-hmm. i remember um i remember yeah like one day i was like no more 
and it's hard. So the decision is hard or, you know, but then doing the work is really hard. And then mm-hmm. there's going to be the next thing because you transfer these behaviors. And so I think a lot of people, I remember when I went to, off to my MBA program in my section, like a number of the guys in the section had been overweight and lost weight and had a, you know, it had a chip on their shoulder and, you know, they were like, it's like, I remember it was like the first time I proved to myself I could do something really hard and it made me much more confident, but then you have all this insecurity. So this is like something you're carrying around inside of you. A lot of people are, um, you've now gone on to do a bunch of different things, including your new project, which is the good life movement. Before mm-hmm. we talk about good life movement and we're going to talk about Yang as well, cause I got some questions for you because Andrew's a friend of the show. He's one of our multiple guests, but tell us, Tell us about the problem that you're trying to solve in America today. I mean, it's really the world, but we're, you know, we're focused on America too. What is going on out there? Because you hear about it, you see it. I mean, it's everywhere. It's just like I get on the subway in New York City and you'll see people who clearly need help. Go to a family reunion, go to a school, read the news. Like it, there is, there is a lot happening in our in our world today that just shows that there is a major problem. But, you know, it would be helpful just to get your perspective, some of the numbers, some of the, the trends so that we can understand the problem we're trying to tackle here. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And the, the interesting thing about the good life movement is that ultimately we are actually trying to solve sort of two problems. Uh, one of course is the mental health crisis itself. And, you know, we don't just want people to be, you know, free from illness and suffering, but we want people to live a good life. Uh, so beyond just uh, getting by. But the second part is that you know we're, we're really actively trying to solve this problem of like, why aren't we actually taking dramatic, urgent action to solve this crisis at the government uh, and institutional level? And so I can speak to both of those. And, you know, both of them are, you know, complex problems, but I'll say this on the, on, on the strategic side, when I got into this work, I thought I was going to have to convince everyone that there's a giant mental health crisis. Um, you know, I've been reskilling since my time with Yang to formally directly work on this um, for several years, meeting everyone in the field, having lots of conversations. And so this was still in the middle of COVID. And I was like, okay, you know, we're going to have to convince legislators or someone that this matters. And what I've consistently found is that pretty much everyone knows there's a mental health crisis. And everyone is on board that it matters. So if you go to the Good Life Movement website, we have a, you know, a carousel of three different rows of data talking about how terrible the crisis is. I could sit here and just list that off all day. You know, veteran suicide rates, youth mental health, LGBTQ mental health, uh, people of color. You know, it's like we, we could sit here and talk about it all day long, but we all know, generally speaking, it's not going well. What I did find that I think is a a unique contribution is that our problem isn't that there's a crisis. It's that we don't realize within the general public how much power we have if we actually unite behind this cause. So I did some polling with some other mental health organizations, and we found that the level of support, not just for mental health, but mental health action at the political government level is 92% of Democrats, 92% of independents, and 94% Republicans. At the same time, This has been found to be the number one health cause in the nation over COVID, over cancer, the number one cause for parents, number one cause for educators, and it's the number one political cause for the entire Generation Z that's over climate change. 
And the reason that is, is because this is like one of the few causes in our nation that everyone actually supports. You have this this radical base foundation across the entire aisle where everyone's like, yeah, like we should probably be doing more on that. And so that is what has actually inspired me a lot behind this movement is because, you know, if you do mental health right, this gets to the, the other part of like, what's the actual problem? If you do mental health right, you're not just taking on the healthcare system, you're improving how we live as people because we are continuing to know and we've really always known that, you know, mental health, should be treated with the same seriousness of, as physical health, but it is ultimately different. The right interventions are very upstream. The uh, treatments are very social. It's, it, it's, it's, you know, we can find tremendous um, returns by uh, investing in prevention and, and changing the way we live uh, and, and ultimately what we value. You know, I can speak more again to you know, what that means in the crisis itself, but that, that is, that, that's really what we're, we're honing in on at the Good Life Movement. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. You know, it's interesting. I, I had this conversation today that I was, when I had it, I was like, oh, I'm going to tell Andrew about this, which is, <laughs> which is that, um, you know, what are, this is, at least if I can say this and not sound completely obnoxious, there's this new drug that wealthy people are using that they're not going to get in trouble for that, that I'm not saying it's bad, but like everybody's self-medicating on psychedelics and, you know, stuff like that. And it's to like, you know, it's definitely like, you know, people who would be very against, you know, illegal things, they're all doing it. 
And and I'm not faulting that. And I, you know, there's clear efficacy for some of these things, right? But I heard the story. Some person, friend of a friend, was like a little bit down or not feeling well. So their solution was to go to some one of these like startups that would send you an at home ketamine treatment mm. that you do a consult via Zoom, and then they send you three ketamine treatments to do on your own at home, which is. I mean, that's just that. Okay. So, I mean, there's a lot in that. And, and by the way, we're going to have a ketamine company come on later. And we're going to talk about that later in the season. And there's some good stuff in there. So like, I'm not, I'm not saying it can't work. There's clinical, but the fact of the matter, people are self-diagnosing and using new treatments in the comfort of their homes. If that's where we are, you know, it frightens me. I'm curious, Andrew. Like, do you, you know, have you seen this kind of stuff? Like, how how would you take a read of that? Like, what does that say to you? Yeah, I think, I think it says a few things. I, I think it shows a tremendous appetite for people to find a solution to uh, not just their own individual uh, emotional challenges, but the crisis. Um, you know, we, we've just had decades of people not really being able to even one talk about what they're feeling or the challenges they're having. And so they're, we're really all pent up and looking for a way forward. You know, as far as, you know, ketamine and psychedelics, I agree there's a lot of promise there. Uh, you know, I, I've been a young person where I believed in like, you know, just, you know, start up, just full force, move ahead and innovate. Um, but I do agree, like, I think we should uh, proceed, especially with psychedelics, with, with um, care and diligence, especially because there's uh, plenty of evidence that shows that these treatments can uh, be damaging if, if not done in the right settings and, uh, can trigger psychosis and actually, you know, really not improve things. But again, it gets back to this bigger picture of like, people are looking for a way forward. Um, and this is one of the things that I've said to the mental health field is that, you know, like my, my, my peers in the space is that we haven't really put out a, a vision to people that is, that is clear and inspiring. Um, like the, the same old treatments and the same old access to, a medication through a primary care physician is not going to take us to where we need to get. And this boils down to what the Good Life Movement's perspective on the crisis is, is that the way we talk about it is that we say the the mental health crisis in our country is like a house is on fire and we have a two-part problem. Part one is that we've never even built a fire department. And what that means is a crisis system, a care system, uh, and the insurance reform for people to access it affordably. But part two is that we've never really asked, why is everything on fire? And our perspective on that is that we've just fundamentally created a world that makes people sick. And you can see this in the day-to-day -day where we're so separated from you know, the natural elements that fulfill us most, meaning, community, uh, purposeful work, spirituality and faith, like nature itself. And in its place, you know, we've been pumped full of overly processed junk food, junk information, while you know, trillion dollar tech companies hire the smartest people in the world to monetize our weaknesses and, and, and worst impulses. Um, and this is a, you know, a, a complex problem that has, you know, the way we've come to frame it, a, a root problem, uh, symptoms of that problem, which are the ones we really interface and in that interface with in the day to day, uh, and then an incomplete response. And, you know, I could speak to those, but, but that is really how we view this, uh, is you know, we need to support crisis and, and, and provide people access to real treatments. But, uh, we also need to go bigger and give people a sense that that their life is going to be better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, just to close on the the psychedelics thing, FOMO sapiens. I know you guys. I know you. We're all experientialists in this in this community. So, 
Just be careful. That's all I'm asking. Be careful. Okay. Now, let's talk about solutions because you're building this movement. Movements, you know, so movements are, number one, they're hard to build. But number two is like they grow and they change as they go along. But you have an initial vision of what this is going to be. Mm-hmm. How is this helping? What is what is the vision you have to, to intervene in this problem? Yes. So before I even get into a lot of the details of what uh, the Good Life Movement is is offering, I think one of the important things to note with our organization is that, you know, our vision and the policies and, and sort of what we're doing, you know, it's not just some hip fire, you know, pet theory that's been created in the evenings. I mean, this is something that's been developed over the course of years. Um, I've been speaking with uh, the top researchers, legislators, advocates, people with lived experiences. I've been to facilities. I've been um, I even, you know, I've even spent years, of course, with Andrew Yang. I personally traveled the country with him where I was meeting uh, senators and people all across, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, where I was getting a, a deep sense of the, the the problems, the macro problems as well. And so this have, informs a lot of what the Good Life Movement is working on. And I really view myself as a an operator and strategist and advocate that's helping channel what um, three years of mental health work and six years total of, of work is has funneled towards. So the problems that I outlined that, you know, the, the root problem um, symptoms and, and incomplete response, the, the way that we articulate this is that um, we live in a society that uh, overlies on GDP and eco- economic measures uh, to determine the uh, direction and well-being in, of our society. And, mm-hmm. you know, the general assumption we've been living with is that, you know, if the economy grows, we're going to become a happy society and a happy people. And the reality that we not just feel in the air, but it's true in the data, is that that hasn't really borne out as true, especially in the United States. Happiness and life satisfaction is flatlined the last 50 years in the United States, while GDP has been, you know, two or three hundred percent up. Suicides are up. You know, we have a mental health crisis. And part of the root problem here is that in the United States, we don't actually measure how we're doing as people. We have all sorts of different, you know, proxy measures that are important to us. Uh, you know, rates of educational attainment. We measure all different types of, of, of health conditions. But we don't actually have one single all-inclusive measure of our well-being in this general sense of life satisfaction, well-being, mental health. Just um, one measure that we can look at is like, are people having a good time? Is there, mm-hmm. life, is there life of quality? Um, and the problem that that creates is that we don't actually have real accountability in any office anywhere that the world we're creating is one that we're going to be happy in. And so we continue to say, oh, money's going to take us there. It doesn't. And what ends up actually happening is that, you know, the economic growth so frequently comes at cost of our well-being and happiness. And so we look at that as the root problem that creates the symptom and suite of problems where everyone is incentivized to just sort of like maximize money and profits and revenue at the expense of people. And this manifests into a, a story that I like to tell of a, a hypothetical uh, woman named Martha, where, um, and, and you can see how this relates so directly to the mental health crisis, which is that, let's say Martha is a uh, single mother. And as a new mother, she is at outsized risk of a mental health condition. If she's a person of color, that risk is even higher. If she's like most Americans, her me- you know at the median income, she makes $34,000 a year. Um, she works two hourly service jobs that won't let her work full time. So she doesn't get benefits. So she's back at work, uh, before her son 
has the ability to hold his head up with his own muscles. Um, the median rent is $1,100 a month. So Martha is living on $21,000 a year before food, transportation, childcare. And if Martha is like the rest of Americans, the average American, she's no longer optimistic about the world she's raising her son in. She doesn't feel like the next five or 10 years, things are actually going to be better than they are now. And so if Martha develops a mental health condition, who would really blame her? And yet in America, we actually pathologize her response where we say, something's wrong with Martha. What is Martha not doing? She needs to be meditating or reading Atomic Habits to break out of her problems. And it's like, we all should be doing those things. My, I've made so much of my life based on, you know, meditation apps and self-help and, and doing a lot of the work behind the scenes. But this is what the Good Life Movement is really framing our, 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 our solutions and vision around, which is like, we want to be honest about what's really causing a lot of the root problems for so many people. And, you know, that story of, of, of Martha doesn't even account for or address, you know, again, in the day to day, if Martha comes home from her stressful day, she goes home and then, you know, with her phone, she has this unregulated casino that's shortening her attention span. And again, preying on her impulses, goes to the grocery store where she's, you know, buying the food that, you know, is most accessible to her, which is probably junk food that's inflaming her body uh, and reducing her her energy levels and willpower. So it's like, Martha has a crappy hand. And so that is ultimately what we are getting at with the good life movement. And it's not to knock biological sources of, of, of any conditions. And it's not to knock even like childhood traumas that might be weighing on uh, Martha into adulthood. But we also want to acknowledge even in those instances, broken societies like this create the broken people that are causing so much of the trauma that we deal from for a lifetime. And so if you really look at it far enough up, what is the source of so much of this? And if Martha wants care, again, the fire department, she doesn't have a great path. 55% of counties don't have a mental health provider. Um, and even if she can try and get access to a therapist, her insurance company is breaking a law that was passed in 2008 that we're not enforcing and making it very difficult for her creating arbitrary limitations and referrals and you know she has to go through all these hoops to even get care and they're trying to take out her willpower before she can actually exercise her own rights and benefits so that's what we are getting at again there are supportive policies but so much of what we're doing as an organization is we are getting all the people together and we're just monitoring what's going on and bringing awareness at the government level so that we can intervene because this isn't going to be one bill this is accountability at the state level, local level, federal level. And we need to create a real machine that will uh, intervene because this isn't, again, just healthcare. This is so many different types of legislation that are truly going to support Martha. FOMO. FOMO. Yeah. And the thing about creating change, and this is, you know, this is like generational change, right? I mean, you, you want it to be quicker, but having now done political stuff for the last five, six, seven years, what I learned is like, it's, uh, you have to have a movement. Yes, you have to have people, you have to have vision. You then have to take that and turn it into political power. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's just a whole bunch of things that one has put together and it is the work of a lifetime or, you know, 10, 20 years anyway. So that's kind of what you're, you're, you're in that now you're in that game. Now, you know, I, you, you have your, um, your bio states, which I love <laughs> is that you created the math hat for Andrew yeah. Yang, which is so cool. 
And you were, you know, front and center in Yang's campaign, which no matter what you think of Andrew or his policies or whatever, it doesn't matter. You have to give tons and tons of respect to the movement. I mean, you took and raised awareness a bunch, but totally in a totally different vibe, like just like doing politics in a whole different way. And, you know, it really did reach people, which is awesome. And now you're, you know, so you, you kind of, that's like, that was your like, you know, you're sort of like, you cut your teeth on that, right? Mm-hmm. Now you're doing this again, you're starting again. And I'm curious for folks who want to build movements, whether it's for brand to sell something or to, to, to fix the world or change the world or whatever, like, what have you learned about that process? Like, what are, what are the things that, you know, you've taken away that you, you there's sort of like maybe, you know, the special insights you've been able to, to gather? I, I learned so many things on that campaign, to say the least. Mm. As far as movements, it is incredibly difficult. Uh, that was what I learned very loud and clear. You know, I, again, was on the founding team, second person hired. We launched the thing from his mother's living room. I ran the marketing through all of 2018 into 2019. And I was doing all the same creative, seemingly awesome stuff uh, in 2018 that I was doing in 2019. And 2018, we were just up against a wall, no progress, nothing we were doing could stick. We just felt like failures. This was going nowhere. And then, you know, after 14, 15 months of running for president, plugging away, I mean, a tremendous product, you know, Andrew Yang and his message is the product. Uh, everything comes together and we sort of start to blow up. And then we're viewed as like the most innovative presidential campaign in years. I mean, everything we do, we can't miss. I was raising millions of dollars on merchandise every month. I couldn't do wrong. I mean, it was like every campaign we were running was interesting and awesome and rolling in cash. All the metrics that for a presidential campaign uh, you get high five for. And that was a tremendous takeaway because, again, we toiled away for all of 2018 and pretty much got nowhere. And that was a team of five spending tens of thousands, tens of thousands of dollars a month to try and break out with, again, what ended up later being proven as a great product. And so, you know, in years while I was building this organization, I would consult with brands and companies and they would ask me, like, how do we do it? How do we build a community? And I'm like, man, like, like, I don't know if you're going to be able to do it. Like you're a B2B company, like you can get your (laughs) your little corner, but like, you're not going to build a movement. Like it's probably not going to happen unless you really present something different. Like you really have to master the message and totally tap into something deep. Um, you know, so much of Yang's success, it's like, like, Ooh, I was the marketing guy. We had a great product. His message was like flawless. Uh, the way he delivered this radical idea of like free money, uh, and made it sound like fundamentally American and centrist and was swinging 8% of conservatives. I mean, who's done that ever in the last 30, 40 years. So that was on movements, something I learned though. I had some other lessons that definitely relate to uh, inspired everything around the good life movement and our whole strategy that I only picked up because of the, the privileges I had working on his campaign. And I, I, I could speak to that, but I'll uh, try to not ramble in 10 minute blocks. Well, give us one of those. We're wrapping up here, but give us one of those things that you're working with now, because you know, you're, you're in it, you're starting from, well, you know, you're starting over. Yeah. And so what, what, what is the thing you're doing right now that you learned there that you think is going to make a difference? Well, the, the main thing that I learned that was incredibly shocking to me 
was that the people's voice actually matters. And that sounds really sad that I had to realize that. But I think like most Americans, we don't feel like we actually have much of a voice or that like what we do gets heard or goes anywhere. But when I was working for him, I couldn't believe how frequently um, I would be in the room while other candidates would pull him aside and say, hey, I wish I could talk about what you're saying or say it the way you say it, but I can't. I have these groups that are sort of like, uh, you know, they're going to vote against me or pressure me in one way or another. And what I ultimately re realized from that as I continued working with him was the way the entire political system actually works, generally speaking, is that politicians react to what votes them in or out of office. And so if you want to, as the public, influence politicians and legislation, you have to have and swing a noticeable block of voters. Like they love their job. They want to keep it. And that influence is very binary. If you have 50 people making phone calls, you know, Nancy Pelosi's going to be like, that's awesome. Like, I do care about your cause also, but I have tens of thousands of people calling me about probably 20 other things, and they're actually going to vote against me in the primary. And that's like the major linchpin that I realized when I looked at the mental health space after Yang's presidential campaign, I was trying to understand why are we not moving legislation? Everyone seems to love this cause. And then I looked around and I noticed that the mental health field had never actually built the infrastructure for a movement. So the, the idea of having a, a, a single hub where that's registering voters, getting people to make phone calls, write letters, do demonstrations, creating a scorecard where you go into an election cycle and say, hey, we have three to five percent of the voters. Here's the agenda. This is a top issue. Can we count on you? No one is doing that in the mental health space. And it's a cornerstone of good advocacy. And the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll sort of close on with with this that I think blows people's mind is that when you make a phone call to a congressional office, they almost quite literally have a scoreboard of all the different causes. And when you write in and you say mental health matters to me, they almost quite literally put a little tally and say like one point for mental health. And if you write a personalized letter about your story with family or whatever, it's like two points for mental health. And if you do that consistently week over week, they see mental health at the top of the list and they start to research the bills more and they start to move things through committee. People think we don't have the answers and the ideas for 988 and crisis care and, and new treatments and, and you know process improvement. A, a lot of it is there and it's already sitting in a bill somewhere. It's just that we aren't making the phone calls. And so that's what the Good Life Movement is trying to tap into this, again, 90% block of Americans that want this cause, want to advance it. If we get them together, we can finally actually move something forward because this is one of the few things we agree on. And again, if you do it right, it transforms actual lifestyle and day-to-day -day, um, life for you know Martha and the rest of us. Um, so that is the one insight that is seemingly so obvious, but really uh, did did lead to the good life movement through a, through a, a domino effect of of series of events. Yeah, you gotta be top of mind. You're so right. You gotta be top of mind. These people's job is to listen to you. Don't be afraid to reach out to them. All right, if you wanna find out more about the Good Life Movement, head on over to goodlifemovement.org. Check it out. You can donate, you can get involved. There's a million things you can do and they have links to all their socials. All right, Andrew Frawley, founder of the Good Life Movement. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure. FOMO. 
If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.